Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by David Amoyal for a really fun conversation on all things Italian soccer. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is one of my favorite follows on Twitter. David Amoyal is a Boston-based Italian soccer maven who does the terrific Calcio Land podcast. He's also the editor of Gianluca DiMarzio's English-language website and a columnist for ESPN FC and The Athletic. You can also hear David regularly on Sirius XM, and you can find him on Twitter at David Amoyal, A-M-O-Y-A-L. David, thanks for joining me. It's a real pleasure to be on with you, Grant. Thanks so much for having me today. Psyched to have you on, David. There's lots to talk about. But first up, I just wanted to ask you, I'm getting the sense that Italian soccer is getting more popular again, including in the United States. What are the factors that you think are contributing to that? It's a great question. I think a lot of people would say the easy answer is Ronaldo arriving at Juve, but I think the seeds had been planted before then, and I think these seeds are also the reason why Ronaldo decided to come play in Italy for what appears to be maybe the final chapter of his career. Uh, I feel that although Juve has been a dominating force in Serie A, we've had some pretty good title races in recent years, especially last year. Napoli put on a valiant effort. Everyone knew uh, that followed said, yeah, how beautiful Sarri's football at Napoli was that was confirmed at Chelsea. So I think last season there was a lot of exposure uh, with that. I think Roma's run in the Champions League, making it to the semifinals, showed that there was more than just Juve and Serie A. And I think, you know, uh, the whole... Um, you know, idea that Italian soccer is boring and defensive. People that actually watch it, I think, have seen that this is really an old cliche. So I think Ronaldo was really the cherry on top of the Sunday. So I think it has become more popular. And I think the final piece is the coverage on ESPN this season on their app has been really outstanding. I think it's become a lot easier to follow Italian football. And finally, in the Champions League, as it stands now, all four Italian teams would qualify. Uh, So definitely at the club level, at least, there's definitely been a renaissance. Yeah, I was going to ask you what your thoughts were on ESPN getting uh, Serie A this season. I mean, I got really frustrated over the last few years when you'd have some great marquee Serie A matches that being sports, there would be like a PSG game on at the same yep. time, and you wouldn't be able to see on TV at least the the big game from Italy. Um, and it really does seem like, I mean, I don't work for ESPN, but like it really seems like they're doing good coverage with good people as shoulder programming as well to help get storylines and discussion topics out there. Yeah, I certainly agree. And, you know, full disclosure, I am a freelance writer for ESPN, but I think I'm pretty objective in saying that I think they've done really, really great work. I think, you know, ESPN has really been pushing their ESPN Plus app 
very competitive price of $5. You get a lot of content. And uh, although, you know, they have just one game on regular TV, you have access to every game in Serie A in HD. Uh, the commentary is very good. As you mentioned, they brought in Matteo Bonetti, who was one of the voices of uh, ESPN on, on BN Sport for Serie A. Mm -hmm. He now calls the one game and he helps with the coverage. Um, I think you're seeing uh, a lot more exposure. And I think, you know, the problem with BN is they just had too many leagues. And I get that the ratings in Serie A weren't great. But I think, you know, it's kind of like uh, the dog wagging its tail. You got to wonder, okay, would there be better ratings if there was better coverage highlighting what was happening? Uh, so I think ESPN as a whole has been a, a very good partner for Serie A. I think you're going to start seeing more of the marquee games on regular TV on ESPN now that they've gotten a lot of people on the app. So uh, it's definitely a very exciting time. And, uh, and I'm with you. I'm noticing here in the U.S. a lot more interest in Serie A than, say, two, three years ago. What, in your opinion, are some of the most intriguing stories in Italy right now? So um, I would say, for one, Ancelotti at Napoli has been a fascinating um, storyline. I have to admit, uh, Sarri left Napoli thinking he had gone as much as he could out of that squad. They mm -hmm. finished the season with the most points ever for a team that didn't win the title. I think Sarri also felt that there could be a hangover, similar to how in the, the NFL, the team that goes to the Super Bowl and loses typically has a bad season <laughs> following it. But I think Ancelotti deserves a world of credit. He's uh, brought his imprint on Napoli. Sarri was pretty inflexible with his formation, always played the same starting 11. They ran out of gas by the end of the season. We've seen Ancelotti take a very different approach, uh, rotating maybe almost too much and that has really paid off uh well i think juve rightfully so the focus is more on the champions league although they do want to right now they're going for the eighth title in a row they've said their goal is to get to 10 in a row but rightfully so the champions league is more of the focus i thought although they lost against manchester united and turin that was one of the best performance i've mm -hmm. seen for them in the champions league so i think for them uh, the focus has to be that and then we're seeing a resurgence for inter last season they made it back to the champions league after a six-year absence they've done very well in the champions league they got off to a slow start to the season that win against spurs and milan really revitalized them so uh there's some intriguing storylines i can't say that i feel like there's a great contender against juve but uh mm -hmm. I think by the end of the season, if Inter really can uh, continue building, we could have a long-term threat to Juve, and it doesn't hurt that they are their historic rival. What's your sense of AC Milan these days? Obviously, so many of us grew up <laughs> watching some of the greatest teams of all time from AC Milan. And that's not the case, obviously, these days. The ownership situation has been very much in flux. Uh, where yeah. are we right now and where do you think we're headed? So I, I think the best news for Milan is that in the boardroom and on the ownership level, they are in a much better place than they've been in a, a long time. Um, I, I think everything changed for Milan once Berlusconi got divorced. He no longer could spend so much on the team. <laughs> His kids essentially owned... Uh, 
all his wealth and they told him Milan is a place we're not going to be spending money on. So for the last few years since Ibrahimovic left for PSG, we saw Milan with a lot of loan deals, players on free transfers, just not the Milan, as you mentioned, we grew up with. And then Berlusconi promised he would only sell the club to someone who could make uh, Milan great again. It ended up being a very shady deal with some unknown businessmen in China. There's been a lot of theories on this. The good news is backing that deal was the Elliott Fund based here in the U.S. And yeah, they are known as a vulture fund that always looks for underpriced assets that they could kind of revitalize. And I think they saw in Milan a brand that's still very strong. I would say they're probably still the most popular Italian team uh, in the U.S., although Juve is making up the gap quickly. And the Elliott Fund's doing a lot of right things. They brought in Leonardo, a very good sporting director, has experience at the top level. They were able to convince Paolo Maldini to come back. And to me, that's very significant because Maldini had a lot of... Uh, Berlusconi had tried to bring him back. The Chinese owners had tried to bring him back. And he's a very smart man. I know you've, uh, you've interviewed him. And uh, he just didn't believe in the Milan project, but he does believe in the Elliott Fund. And uh, he jumped with both feet right in. He's kind of the face of the team. So look, uh, you know, they still have work to do on the squad. Uh, they had financial fair play restrictions that they inherited. But I think with the boardroom and the ownership, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic right now on the pitch they have a ton of injuries i think it's going to be very tough for them to get back to the champions league this year but i definitely think uh at least in the boardroom they are in the right place and i think uh slowly but surely will suit milan reemerge. now one italian team that has ownership based where you are in boston yeah. is roma uh, with Jim Pilata up there, and we'll get him on the podcast sometime soon. He's a pretty intriguing interview I found over the years. Um, obviously, Roma got to the Champions League semifinals last year, which surprised everyone. They eliminated Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, bit of a rocky start <laughs> this year. Um, where are they right now and like, as far as this season, but also sort of in, we keep hearing about these plans for a stadium and, yeah. and it seems like it drags on a bit. Well, uh, anyone that's familiar with Italy and bureaucracy in Italy <laughs> is probably not that surprised, especially in the city of Rome. Look, it's a very complicated situation also part of me wonders if you know a mayor in rome would want to you know work on a stadium with an american owner as opposed to an owner from the area maybe this is just a theory that i have but i think palotta's done great work i think people underestimate how much of his own money he's pumped into the club everyone sees you know how often Roma has to sell players, but that's because he inherited the club, had so many debts mm -hmm. uh, when he brought them in. Um, so, you know, the run to the Champions League semifinal was fantastic. I think some people saw that as an opportunity to consolidate and build on that team. I think Roma took the approach of, look, we're not going to beat Juve no matter what. Uh, maybe we need to take a step back to take two forward. They sold some of their older players, Nangolan, Scrutman, who I thought, you know, were still big names, were probably not performing up to that level. And they decided to reinvest a lot of that money on younger players. They brought in Monchi, who I've known you've uh, 
interview to run the team and who's better than him to kind of follow that process of looking for young players. So I get their plan. Uh, let's take a step back to take two forward. Let's wait out Juve maybe a little bit. We're seeing this in the NBA with the Golden State Warriors to a certain extent. But for Roma, the key thing is revenue-wise, they do need to make the Champions League every year just to have those revenues. So they are off to a pretty difficult start. Some of the younger players they brought in uh, need more time to uh, get on track. Uh, they're still doing really well in the Champions League, which is good for them. They'll make some revenue, extra revenue if they get out of the group stage. But for them, they're really behind the eight ball to finish in the top four. And it's pretty competitive in Serie A right now. But I definitely get the plan of what Roma is doing. Uh, I think a lot of their fans do too. Uh, but, you know, it's never pleasant to see some of your best players go. Obviously, Schrutman and Angolano, one thing. They also had Allison, who was the best goalkeeper in Serie A last season. They got a great offer from Liverpool. But, you know, that takes its toll on some fans for sure. You know, one thing that comes up with Roma and also other clubs in Italy is financial fair play from UEFA. And uh, Roma has said this. They've had to sell some of these players because of the financial fair play rules. And we even saw the Roma Twitter account in English, which is a pretty good follow, I got to say. Uh, makes a, make a note of these wiki or uh, football league stories that came out recently about how PSG and Man City have sort of worked around financial fair play rules. Do you think Roma has a point when they say we're getting hit with financial fair play and look at these big clubs that aren't as much? Yeah, yeah, I, I can certainly see why um, they would do that. I think it's good that they kind of put a humorous spin on there. And yeah, their Twitter account is fantastic. They are just a few buildings away from where I'm uh, <laughs> calling you in to do it. They do a great job. So yeah, I, I definitely think when you read of PSG and uh, Manchester City, you know, funneling things through sponsors and all, uh, I can totally see why they would think that um you know to me it's no different though than you know with the tax system if you're you know very wealthy you can get great accounts to work through things so unfortunately uh this is a side of football that we see in a lot in business as well and i think palotta you know who's so familiar with the world of hedge funds and whatnot uh i think he knew at least what he was getting himself into and the challenges and the advantages that the bigger fish have with this <laughs> Now, you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo earlier. I, I feel like I should ask, what's your sense of Cristiano Ronaldo so far in Italy? So, um, look, I'll be the first one to tell you, and I cover a lot of transfers on the Marzio side. That's kind of become a niche for me. I didn't think he was going to come to Juve until the actual day that it happened. I had my doubts that they would be able to afford him just from a fi financial fair play aspect mm -hmm. uh so great for juve they were able to bring him in you know what's really pretty remarkable is you know juve is one of the clubs that has the most ballon d'or winners in their history but they've never acquired a player who was the best player arguably the best player in the world mm -hmm. when he came on we've seen nedved win the ballon d'or there we've seen Baggio win the ballon d'or there but they uh when they weren't acquired, they weren't on that level. And you can almost make a case that Ronaldo is the best player Juve's ever had the first time he took the pitch, which is really quite <laughs> incredible. So on the pitch, obviously, he's had a great impact. Juve, 
you know, one of the big reasons, too, they wanted to bring him in was to kind of make up the commercial revenues, because that's really where they fall behind some of the bigger clubs. Now, of course, we've had uh, the alleged rape uh, allegations that came out at all, and I think that was a big hit for Juve. I think it's very fair to say they did not handle that well. We saw their stock take a hit when that happened. Granted, it wasn't the only reason why their stock took a tip so it uh, took a, a tumble um you know it just really goes to show that juve as great as they are they have really a mentality that's very tied to italy just like roma they had tried to the social media thing bring in someone for the u.s he stayed there for about a year and then they went back to their old ways so i, I think impact on the pitch has been great there's been a lot of interest on Serie A. i think from the commercial side of things because of uh, what happened there it hasn't uh, lived up to expectations quite yet for Juve. Um, to me, though, it really comes down to what is he going to do for them in the Champions League. That's the only thing that Juve was missing. I think we have seen them take to the pitch with a kind of attitude and a self-belief that we haven't seen them uh, in a very long time. So on the pitch, great. I think for the rest, you know, more will be revealed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're... Oh you have to separate these uh, very serious allegations yeah. uh, on Ronaldo from Nevada from any other discussion involving the club itself, especially on the field. Um, I was really disappointed with how Juventus as a club tweeted publicly yeah. uh, some of the things they said about Ronaldo uh, saying that somehow how he's been on and off the field for Juve has an influence on how they view the the rape allegations and yeah. that obviously those are two completely different things um i guess one thing i would say like if you say that and then okay we're back in on the field mode because it's impossible to make an easy transition there um <laughs> you know like you look at this goal of winning the champions league for juventus and uh, you mentioned the, the home loss to Man United, which was one of the more ridiculous finishes I've seen in the sense yeah. of just ludicrous. I can't believe that United found a way to win this game. Um, but uh, does Juventus have what it takes this season to finally win the Champions League? So uh, I'll tell you this, that ending with Manchester United so random is the main reservation that I have because we know in the Champions League, it really can be a crapshoot who you get in the draw there. You know, this isn't a league where you play 38 matches where over a bigger sample size things even out like one episode can change everything. So I think that game was a reminder that even with the best plans thing, uh, you know, can't go the way you want them to. But the flip side is, A, this is the strongest Juve that we've seen, you know, in quite some time, at least 10 years. They have all the ingredients uh, to win the Champions League. They're great in attack. Bonucci and Chiellini are really a guarantee on defense. On the wings, they are really strong. And the other factors is we're seeing Real Madrid and Bayern Munich uh, definitely taking a step back this season. So I would say, you know, you could say Manchester City is as good as Juve, but can you really say there's a team that's definitely better? It feels like everything's lining up uh, for Juve the right way. But again, that match against Manchester United, which was really one of their best performances, I think the two matches against Manchester mm -hmm. United was really uh, the best Juve I've seen in the Champions League in a while. Just a reminder that it is a crapshoot and anything can happen. But I think as far as what they can control, they have to feel really good about what they've done. 
I wanted to pull back a little bit now and ask you a pretty basic question. What's your story? How did you get to be doing what you're doing? <laughs> so great question. So, you know, I grew up in Italy in Padova, Del Piero's hometown. I watched him play before he moved on to Juve, but my uh, mother's based in the U.S. I moved back to the U.S. when I was 17, but I kept uh, my passion for Italian football, I kept following it, and you know, I'm pretty old, but the rise of the internet made it a lot easier. I started writing regularly about Juve on a website. People told me, you know, you're pretty good at this. And you know, uh, Di Marzio is also from Padova. He's probably the most famous transfer uh, reporter out there. He's kind of the equivalent of uh, Woj in the NBA, I'd say, for football. Yeah. So I pitched to him, hey, you know, you should be doing uh, your site in English, and I'm looking for a platform to kind of expand my readership base. And he was uh, very skeptical at, f at first that anyone would be interested in what he had to mm. say in English. And I told him, just uh, trust me. And, you know, slowly but surely it built up. I still remember the day that you gave me a plug on Twitter that uh, definitely was a big help. And, um, you know, I always looked at it as kind of, I never really wanted to be a translator. I just saw that as a platform where, hey, you know, you read me here. Will you check out this article here? Then I got to ESPN. And then I saw podcasts were really the wave of the future. I think, you know, a lot of people, I know I consume podcasts more than articles. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to know a lot of uh, journalists like you over the years. And I wanted to do something a little bit different where, yeah, we talk about football, but we also talk about journalism and podcasting. You were one of my uh, first guests. And that was a formula that uh, seems to have worked quite well. So, you know, I have a full-time job in finance. I'm calling you from the office. And what was a hobby with football became a really nice uh, side gig. Nice. That's a very cool story. I, I know, like, DeMarzio is, is fascinating to me. Um, I only found out about him through Twitter, and for all the problems <laughs> that Twitter has, yeah. there are some really wonderful aspects still, I think. One of them is finding people who are really talented in things that I'm interested in. I, what's your sense of how he, DeMarzio, has built this network where he is kind of the Woj of Europe? It's <laughs> a great question. So I, I think what a lot of people don't know is that uh, Gianluca Di Marzio was born into uh, culture, into football. When I was growing up in Padova, uh, his dad was like the coach of the team. He coached all over Italy. And, uh, you know, Di Marzio was born around the game, uh, followed his dad became friends with a lot of people. He created a network like no other with both agents and teams. I feel like a lot of people that report on transfers usually uh, know more of one side or the other. He knows both extremely mm -hmm. well. There's a few times that you know I've collaborated with him on some reports on some transfers. Well, I'll talk to someone and I'll bring it to his attention. Five minutes at later, he circled back with everyone involved and he goes, yep, we're going with this. This is uh, legit. So he's built uh, you know, a great network you know what i like about him is that you know if he's not a hundred percent sure on something he's not 
going to tweet it. I always tell people I get asked a ton of questions when someone else will report on something and Gianluca says nothing, that sometimes you should almost look more at that than the times that he <laughs> reports something. So it's been great. You know, our site, uh, the Di Marzio's English page, you know, the January window is going to be super busy for us. In the summer, uh, we get a lot of traffic. There's a lot of interest. In that, you know, at first it was mainly Serie A, but, you know, a lot of Italian agents now have growing influence. There's a lot of Italian sporting directors at a lot of clubs. Mm -hmm. So the network's built. You know, we've had a lot more of uh, Premier League stories. So it's been a great success. What a lot of people also don't know about Gianluca, that he's not just a transfer reporter. He announces games. He's a host. Like, his life is really football and it's all about building relationships and keeping relationships and not making people look bad i think that in a lot of ways has been the secret to his success yeah as someone who does do occasional insider reporting it's a hard gig you know and if you screw up one thing you can get a hundred things right but people are going to remember the one thing you got wrong Um, yeah so ton of respect for what you guys are doing. I'm also curious to see if Woj or Schefter at some point <laughs> get like, you know, different guys in different languages to increase their audience. <laughs> there you go. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you mentioned the Calcio Land podcast that you do. I've been on it, really enjoy it. Um, lots of good guests on there. Who have some of your favorite guests been? So um, I'll tell you about the last one we had, because, look, um, I, I have a, a slew of guests that I have on pretty regularly, people that cover teams and said, yeah, people that I trust, that we have, you know, a great rapport. And when I bring them on, I know what to expect. They know what to expect. But once in a while, I like to branch out and get, you know, some big name journalists. So obviously I've had you. I've had Rory Smith from The New York Times. Uh, I've had Tariq Panja, who's an amazing reporter mm-hmm. for the New York Times. He was probably one of my favorite guests because mm-hmm. I mentioned we were talking about Milan's Chinese ownership. He had done some amazing reporting on that. So I had him on the podcast last year. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we talked about off the record that would have been an amazing podcast. <laughs> and enough time passes, maybe I will uh, make it into a podcast. And then uh, recently this weekend, I had the author of Totti's autobiography that just came out, Paolo Condò. He's the Italian representative for the Ballon d'Or voting that was a really fun interview because he's an old school italian journalist the type of guy that has a million stories you'll ask him about a player and you'll ask him about a little detail and he'll jokes go off on an amazing tangent so uh you know with the guests we try to keep it you know uh, moving try to cover a lot of topics without um you know staying too long on something but i always like to get you know information kind of how you asked me how I got to do what I do. I, I've noticed a lot of people with podcasts, those are the types of stuff they enjoy almost more mm-hmm. uh, than the information. So uh, it's been great. The podcast has been growing a lot. I have to say that I really enjoy doing it. I maybe get more satisfaction out of writing uh, what I think is a pretty good article. There's more work to it, but a podcast, the immediacy um, is definitely a lot of fun. I wanted to ask you about something that came up in an interview I did once with Jose Mourinho. This was when he was at Real Madrid, so it's a while back. But we were talking about his experiences in different countries, and obviously he coached in 
Italy, he coached in Spain, he's coached in England and Portugal. And we are talking about how the media coverage is different in each country. And mm. he mentioned that in Spain, so much is about late night radio, like around midnight, you'll hear like really exclusive yeah. interviews with the top figures in the game on Spanish radio, which has a huge following at that time of night. Uh, he said in England, you have to deal with more uh, tabloid stuff, uh, paparazzi who are trying to find out information about your life off the field. And he said in Italy, all they want to do is break down the game in crazy detail. So like he's like, you get all these long questions about like yeah. crazy specific tactical things and games will be analyzed in the papers for days after they take place sometimes. Is that your experience too? And what else have you noticed that's sort of unique about Italian soccer media and the way they cover the sport? Well, that's a very interesting angle. And, you know, right when you were describing Mourinho, it made me think that one of the biggest complaints you hear about Palotta with Roma fans is that they would like for him to be in Rome more often. And to, they feel like, you know, he really needs to know the game, even not only the coaches, even the presidents of the team <laughs> in Italy are really expected to know and be able to break down the game. I mean, Berlusconi was really known for having his own uh, tactical ideas and calling his coach, telling him what lineup <laughs> to put in. So it's very different. I, I, I definitely could see the tactical aspect. I mean, in Italy, it's no surprise that we see so many great Italian managers go in other leagues and do really well. There's certainly a lot of aspect there. I think in Italy, though, too, they really like uh, to get, you know, headlines that will get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, journalists like uh, journalists there like to play the gotcha game with uh, players sometimes get a quote that they know is going to be on the front page of the newspaper and get a lot of hits I will say you know you described in Spain the late night um, radio in Italy the newspapers are still really strong in Italy we still they still have three newspapers national newspapers just dedicated to sports that do really quite well in Italy is one of the few places when I go you still see newsstands all over the place like it, it's like unheard of anything else so I, I think there is a little bit of the tabloid aspect to it as well in some cities maybe more than others in Rome and Milan a lot of the people want to know what are the players doing after the game I think in Turin it's a little bit more laid back and that's why a lot of players like going to Juve they don't get quite the attention so i would say you know there's the tactical aspect but also the more sensa sensationalized aspect to it i mean in italy the complaining on a referee's bad decision i mean we're still talking over 20 years later about a penalty kick that caused the scudetto to go to juve enter i mean it's still uh they, that can still get a front page 20 years later so that goes to show what it's like anytime i mention byron moreno on twitter i get a bunch of italian fans who come who really hate the guy he's the referee from the 2002 yeah. world cup game between <laughs> italy and south korea that oh. italians felt cheated them in that game and and many years later was actually arrested at jfk airport yeah. here in new york carrying bags of cocaine as a mule uh, i tried to get an interview with Byron Moreno in, in the in the federal pen when he was out in Pennsylvania and I got as far as his lawyer never quite got the uh, the jailhouse interview and uh, he's back in, uh, in I think Ecuador 
these days. But yeah, if, if I put Byron Moreno, if I just type that on my Twitter feed right now, I'd have a bunch of Italians chiming in, I think. Very- well, I'll tell you, if you interview it, I'll gladly translate <laughs> it to Italian for you. That, that'll that get a lot of hints, that's for sure. Because actually, that 2002 team, I was just talking about it with the author of Totti's book, who's covered seven World Cups. That team in 2002, there's a lot of people that think that was even better than the 2006 <laughs> team that won the World Cup. So yeah, it's definitely a very touchy subject still today. So if you ever interview him, uh, call me. I'll put it in Italian <laughs> right away. Uh, I wanted to wrap up just by asking you about Boston and um, and Italian soccer there. I lived in Boston from 2004 to 2007. I was within walking distance of the North End, a uh, very heavily Italian part of town. Always loved going over there. Uh, what, in your opinion, are the best locations in Boston where people can watch Italian soccer? Great question. So the North End is definitely the place to go. There's a place called Cafe dello Sport on Hanover Street that shows all the games on weekends. Now that ESPN has the app, it's really easy. So that's definitely a great spot. So the North End's definitely a lot of passion, a lot of people from Italy, a lot of Italian tourists that come to Boston. So you'll get really the vibe there. It does feel like almost being in a cafe in Italy. So I recommend that spot, uh, you know, more than ever. It's just really interesting, you know, with the Roma thing, there's definitely much more buzz about, uh, you know, for soccer here in Boston. I always think to me the missing ingredient is be great if we had, you know, the revolution with a stadium in the city as opposed to far away. To me, that's the only thing missing because uh, there's definitely a lot of interest here for it. And for my last question, uh, we're actually doing this interview on the day before the Italy-USA game, uh, and we're coming out after that game, so obviously we don't know what the result is going to be, but what we do know is these are two teams, including Italy, that failed to qualify for World Cup 2018. Uh, Where do you think the Italian national team is right now, and where do you see it going? So I'll tell you, and I get a lot of criticism for this. I actually think the talent level is really scarce in Italy. I think not making the World Cup, their former manager, Ventura, who had a horrible disposition. I mean, he is the ideal villain, the (laughs) ideal person you would want to blame. But I think in a way he was such a perfect villain that the storyline was also missed that there was a lack of talent. Uh, I think, you know, you look at Italy the past, after winning the World Cup, they failed to get out of the group stage twice in a row. They didn't qualify for the last World Cup. When I, it, you know, even the top teams in Italy, Juve doesn't have many Italian players. Napoli has really just one in Insigne. The top teams barely have any Italians. The only one that really plays regularly on a top team in Europe is Verratti at PSG. So the talent, I, I think, is definitely definitely very scarce on the bright side i have to say mancini has done quite well in my opinion with what he's had i think he's taken a dual approach he's called up a lot of young players to kind of give them some exposure if they don't play in the league he'll give them a chance on the national team and i think that's really good and he's also tried to come up with like a set lineup in the past few times he started up pretty much the same players Uh, The midfield is coming up. Jorginho, a lot of people know from Chelsea, uh, is finally getting his feet wet with the Italian national team. Verratti is doing quite well. 
There's a young midfielder called Barella who's been playing for Cagliari on the national team that's quite good. So there are some encouraging signs. What Italy really lacks right now is a great striker because on defense they still have Chiellini and Bonucci, but they're really lacking a one striker that can make the difference. We have two in Serie A that do quite well, Immobile and Insigne. Uh, you know, these are guys that can get 20, 15 goals a season, but for the national team, for whatever reason, they don't get it done. So I have to say uh, I'm a little bit more encouraged compared to two, three months ago. Uh, it would just be great to have like a Vieri, Luca Toni type uh, to really put the team together. So I'm a little bit more encouraged, but there's definitely a lot of work to be done to have, uh, you know, a, the type of Italy that you and I grew up with. David Amoyal does the Calcioland podcast. He's also the editor of Gianluca DiMarzio's English language website and a columnist for ESPN FC and The Athletic. You can hear him regularly on Sirius XM. You can find him on Twitter at David Amoyal, A-M-O-Y-A-L. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure, Grant. Thank you so much for having me and keep up the wonderful work. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank David Amoyal as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Etrigaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.